This afternoon I'd like to explore the theme of concentration or samadhi in our practice. And uh, like John, I'd like to uh, begin with a poem. I wrote this poem on samadhi. Whether I was in a state of samadhi, I don't know. (laughs) This ancient vocation of simplicity. Purity of heart is to will one thing, said Kierkegaard. The breath opens the doors to outer life and to inner light where we may for a time reside in silence, stillness, and brilliant space, to be brought, refined, renewed, revived, revisioned, back to the next sounds, steps, and sights of this journey home. Concentration or samadhi, and I'll say some in a while, just in a moment, about the terminology, is um, one of the main themes of the teachings of the Buddha. And it appears on quite a number of the 37 wings. We've mentioned it with the five spiritual faculties and the five powers and the seven factors of awakening. It also appears on the Eightfold Path. And I'm going to talk some also about um, wise effort or right effort in practice. And I was counting them up. And together, we have 12 out of 37 just with this one talk alone. So you can check down the list as we proceed in the retreat. And I don't know if that means that one-third of all the material will come through this talk, I don't know. But uh, um, concentration and uh, what's called wise effort or right effort are both very, very central. They're mentioned over and over again. And so um, this afternoon what I want to do is to talk some about the uh, nature of samadhi or concentration, to talk about... um, what happens with uh, deepening concentration? Really both the <clears throat> qualities that are developed and what we work through as concentration deepens. And then focus some on how to practice to develop further concentration. Some uh, suggestions for practice really that are really applicable for us whatever um, mode of practice we're doing or really wherever we are in our practice. Uh, much of it will should be relevant. And then at the end, talk about the relationship between uh, concentration and insight. Really, which is in the uh, core teachings of the Buddha, the purpose of concentration or the po- purpose of uh, a quiet mind or a stilled mind is to have liberating insight. It's to see more clearly. Purpose is not uh, steadiness or stillness for the sake of stillness. It's for the sake of insight. And that's always the, the um, intention there. So the term samadhi is typically translated as um, concentration, and it's not a great translation. Uh, It can be confusing. I know for me, it was a term which probably um, encouraged me for a long time to be unskillful in my samadhi practice by suggesting almost a sense of here I am concentrating so I can really be with my breath. And uh, I think it it can suggest sometimes... uh, maybe uh, over-effort, striving, 
someone here who's really doing the concentrating. And I imagine that most of us can relate to that. At some point, uh, we've come up against that in our practice. And so uh, I think there's some better terms that can suggest really the, um, ultimately the way that this uh, steadiness and settledness of mind actually comes out of a deep relaxation and one that is um, involved with a, a kind of unity or unification of awareness. And I'll say more about that. So in the, um, in the etymology, the word samadhi is connected with uh, really two roots. The first is sam, S-A-M, which is related to um, some words in English and other European languages, it's related to words like summary or sampler, and it means bringing together, kind of collecting or uh, unifying. And uh, the, the second root, adi, uh, is usually seen as, as meaning to put something in its place. So this would mean something like collecting or unifying in one place. That's really the root a word. So um, some translations which may work better for you in practicing samadhi might be terms like unification of mind, or you, I like unification of mind, heart, and body. Or sometimes it's translated as uh, one-pointedness. But I think uni- my preference is unification of mind, heart, and body. Really that collectedness of our whole experience in ways that all the, all the parts come together. One teacher who teaches here sometimes, Richard Shankman, who's written a book on, on samadhi, he says that samadhi is unifying the mind in steady, undistracted awareness. It's a quality we can develop further in our practice, but it's, it's basically a natural quality. It's a very basic quality of many, many beings. Um, some of us, I know, were a few days ago, were watching the two herons. How many were watching the herons a few days ago? They're out there on the walkway. And um, many of us were there when one, I know one heron looked like it was um, actually hunting. And the level of samadhi <laughs> was high. <laughs> and it was, you could see it, it was like, <laughs> it was peering over, and it was just very, very intense. And um, actually, in the time I was watching it, uh, it just stayed like that for a while and then kind of relaxed a little bit. So maybe it was picking stuff up from us, I don't know, and just practicing, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> never saw any, you know, any attack or anything. But it's actually interesting because it's it's very natural tendency. We have that quality of samadhi in many, many parts of our lives. Uh, I remember that once I read uh, the poet Gary Snyder once speculated, I don't know if it was more than speculation, he thought that actually the practice to develop stillness in meditation may have actually come from shamanic cultures focus on hunting and the quality of stillness required in the hunt and the sense of being one with what was hunted. It's quite interesting you know, to, to see that. And so it's a very natural quality and we can feel it. And it's also mysterious sometimes. We can feel that sense sometimes of stillness and steadiness, sometimes maybe um, in the natural world. Sometimes we're just in a place where the mind gets really, really quiet in a particular environment or maybe with particular people. I remember one of my first really pronounced experiences was when I was in college and um, Ramdas, kind of the spiritual teacher and explorer came to visit the college where I was. And he just said, you know, come to this chapel. And that was it. And I went, there weren't very many people there. He wasn't well known at that point. It was like 12 people. And um, 
I sat there for three and a half hours and my mind was really, really quiet. I had no idea what he was talking about, really. You know, I was at that time kind of primarily identified as an activist. But I, some, for some reason I went. I went to that gathering. And, uh, but there was something about it that made me come back. He, he came back a few days in a row. And it was very, uh, something about that settling and the mind being really, really quiet in that, in that presence was very powerful. This is from the text, the uh, Fasudi Magas, a famous meditation text from about 15, 1600 years ago. Samadhi, samadhi is the profitable unification of mind and heart. It is the centering of consciousness, mind and heart evenly and appropriately on a single object, undistracted and unscattered. So we can, in, in practicing samadhi, we really do it in two main ways. It really points to the different kinds of um, samadhi or unification of mind. On the one hand, we focus on just one object continually. You know, and we do that in our settling with the breath. And we do that in metta. You know, so probably for most of us, the two main forms of samadhi or concentration practice that we do here are being with the breath and being with the uh, practice of metta. And we just keep coming back. And we can, when we do this intensively, we do it all day long. We practice with the breath. If you were practicing samadhi practice, and some of you may wish to, to do this more, if we were practicing with the breath or with metta, we would do nothing else our entire waking time. Just the breath or just metta. That's what we do in the metta retreats. All day long, it has that um, simplicity that, you know, in that quotation from Kierkegaard, purity of heart is to will one thing. There's a, there's a beautiful kind of settling and peace and relief which can come when we do this kind of practice. It's, it simplifies life tremendously. Just one thing. And there can be a beauty to it. So we would just be with the breath in the dining hall. We would uh, be with the breath. You know, one can have the other sensations, like a food can, can be there some, but there's always the thread of the breath. Same with metta. You would always have the thread of metta going. In formal time, walking up and down, still keep it going. Same thing all the time. And that, that would be intensive concentration practice. And the, the other way that concentration is really manifest is with changing objects. And that would be when our mindfulness or Vipassana practice reaches a certain level of concentration, we can stay with changing objects continually. Sometimes it's called momentary samadhi or momentary concentration where we stay with different objects, but as it were, the, the attention is, is very, very steady and still. And we can stay for a long time just with the flow of experience. We can be uh, in concentration practice with any number of objects. You know, the breath and metta are really our two main forms here, but there can be many ways that we do it. With, um, you know, in the classical teachings, there were 40 different objects that we pay, can pay attention to that can uh, be used for concentration practice. You know, and there are others that are done and used in other traditions. We can, we can chant. I have a friend who chants the entire day. You know, very much like if we were with the breath all day long. The chanting just keeps on going on. You know, and metta is in a way like that some. Or some other forms, you know, maybe some, forms, some of us have done visualization practices. And when you do those, it takes a certain steadiness and concentration. There's a kind of uh, way that the attention almost uh, merges with what one's visualizing. And, and one can actually feel um, changes in one's attention and even one's body that parallel what happens when one works with the breath. So it could be any number of objects, could be being with the body, being with a touch point on the cushion, 
uh, we could we could look at a tree and work with concentration practice and all sorts of things we can really work with. So what happens when we develop concentration further? What happens when we really deepen in concentration? I wanna really talk about two main qualities and these are really, or two main processes and these are two processes that really are there for our entire practice of mindfulness because we necessarily work with a significant amount of concentration just to, in being here, in being at a retreat. A concentration very naturally develops. So um, on the one hand, as we develop concentration, certain qualities emerge like steadiness, like calm, like um, often a kind of equanimity. And I'll, and I'll go through those in a moment. A number of very beautiful qualities develop as concentration <clears throat> grows more deeply. <clears throat> and the second thing, <clears throat> the second process that occurs when we work with concentration is that we go through our stuff. There's some, what we might call a purification process which we haven't really talked so much about. You know, we've, we've pointed to it. But I think we all know that um, when we're here and we're wanting to be entirely with the breath or with metta, other things arise. <laughs> which are, in some ways, maybe all of that which is in our being, which makes it hard for us to be present, So it can be our fear, anger, judgment, our various qualities, you know, our sense of self and so forth. And I want to talk about both of those because in a way, every retreat that I've ever experienced has both processes. It has both the developing of what we might call um, awakening factors and it also has kind of the engagement with our stuff. The Buddha didn't use the word stuff, but... And in fact, I think, you know, some of our stuff historically may be quite new. (laughs) I think in the annals of the history of Buddha's practice, we have developed recently in history a number of different ways to be confused that were not there in the original text. Uh, so that's, that's the humorous side of it. The positive side of that is actually we need actually more skillful means to work through them. You know, so personally, I've been especially interested in the judgmental mind you know, and, and work a lot with that and very interested in that as something that, I don't know, may be new in some ways historically, at least in the number of people who are judgmental. <laughs> um, let me say that another way. Um, just the, I think it has, this is speculation, but I think it has to do with the, the, the way the self evolves historically and the way that there is a kind of individuation process that's very, very widespread that one doesn't find in a lot of other cultures but that are rapidly uh, growing and coming into a number of different cultures. I remember very interesting experiences in Thailand where I would see that, where, I don't know, I'll, t- I'll tell this story. It's kind of interesting. It's a little bit of a digression, but... I would. Um, I, I took part in a number of gatherings in Thailand that that were um, for those interested in connecting inner work with uh, service and action in the world. And people mostly from Asia, and um, some of the Thai organizers had spent time in the U.S. and they brought certain. I don't. I would say California group process techniques back into <laughs> our gathering. And so, for example, at the end, they would have people, at the end of the gathering, a week gathering, they asked everyone to say one thing they liked and one thing they didn't like about the gathering, which I think went against some cultural norms to some extent. I could feel the, you know, when people were first asked to do that, one could feel the reticence of people. And then once the first people did it, everyone seemed to really get into it. And it's mostly about the food. <laughs> um, anyway, I just mentioned that I, I, 
I'm not sure, but I think that this, that a lot of our material that we work through in concentration, other aspects of meditation, in part have to do with the, the kinds of selves which develop at this, in this form of culture, which may not have appeared in the same ways in other cultures. A lot's quite similar, though. <laughs> you know, so, um, but there's, it's interesting in that way. So I wanted to talk about these uh, qualities that develop in concentration um, by using a model that, that some of you know, which is the model of the five main ways that we deepen in concentration, which are called the five jhanic factors. And they really are connected uh, with deepening concentration. And the word jhana, as many of you know, is related to a very uh, deep and absorbed type of concentration in which really uh, much of the sense of separate self falls away and there's an absorption in the object, which could be the breath, could be metta, and so forth. So the first of these, I'll, I'll mention these, uh, the first is called uh, uh, vitaka, which usually translated as aiming or connecting with the object. The second is sustaining attention with the object, it's vichara. The third is piti, which is usually translated as rapture or joy, uh, being taken into the energy. The, the fourth is sukha or happiness, contentment, and the fifth is one-pointedness, ekagata. So I wanted to talk about how concentration develops, some of the qualities that develop under these categories, because we can recognize um, the deepening of concentration by, the, by noting the presence of these factors. So the first is aiming or connecting, uh, vitaka. And it's really, really crucial. This is, this is initially the way that we keep coming back to the object. We keep focusing on the object, the breath, and that is really important to, to find the object and to really connect with it. And sometimes the object is hard to find. That initial connecting is really, really crucial. It's that, that um, finding and meeting the object. You know? And every time that we, our mind wanders, we do that once more. And that has to be done in a way that really connects with the object where the next phases won't really happen. The second is the ability to sustain awareness the sustaining or vichara aspect of concentration. And so here we gradually find more stability with the breath, with whatever we're following, sometimes again with changing objects. So there's more stability, there's more settledness, there is a a steadiness of attention uh, and a stillness where we develop the ability just to be with the object of attention And in doing so, to a large extent, we cut through all the distractedness. When we can be in a sustained way with the object, there's much less distraction. There's much less of the being taken away because the mind, in a way, keeps the the attention on on the object, the breath or the metta. And sometimes, you know, as many of us know, it can feel like it becomes effortless, that we're with the breath or we're with the metta and it's just happening and there's not much effort and it's almost like we are in a groove. We're in a groove and we're staying with the object. You know, one phrase that's sometimes used is we ride the rails. When the mind is very steady, it can have that sense of just staying with the object and it becomes very, very easy when that's there to move away from distraction. So it's very powerful because ultimately the, again, the main aim of this practice is to have that steadiness of mind so that we can then turn attention to phenomena, see where we're caught, see the nature of change, the nature of suffering, and the nature of our constructions of self and objects more carefully for the purposes of freedom. And so that steadiness is completely crucial. 
You know, there are many, many passages in the text where it says to have deep insight, to have freedom without stability of mind, that is impossible. It's repeated over and over again like that, that that's the case. And in a way, on the level of the brain, what we're doing at that point is we're really developing almost like neural grooves so that we get really familiar. We're developing these alternative pathways that we can just move into and stay with in concentration. The third aspect, or the third kind of family of changes that happens with concentration is connected around the term PT, joy or rapture, one of the seven factors of awakening that John talked about. And this is a kind of deep relaxation of mind and heart and body such that there develop qualities of energy in the body, of bliss, of what's sometimes called rapture. Very, very pleasant at times. At times, not so pleasant. You know? And, and the, this, this develops. And it can actually be a beautiful quality. That sometimes the sitting with pleasure of this kind, kind of meditative pleasure, and sitting with bliss can actually have a deep healing quality. It can really give a sense of the inherent, um, what, the inherent uh, okayness of our being. It's my experience at times, just to sit with this can really be, it actually can be a beautiful antidote for our difficulties at times and can really give us that other perspective and really shift something really in the mind-body-heart complex. It's said that the deep pleasure of concentration can uh, uproot many of our attachments to other things. Because actually some of that, the qualities of pleasure may make other kinds of pleasures seem very insignificant. There's a deep kind of awe and resting in um, our own minds and hearts so that we carry the capacity for that deep uh, well-being right inside our bodies, like that, that statement, within the fathom-long body is the rising and falling of the world, or is everything we need, and that it can be a sense, uh, give, give us a sense of, of self-sufficiency to some extent, that, that that sense of well-being is there. And it was interesting that it was a really a turning point in the Buddha's discovery of the middle way when he was wondering about the renunciate path, sort of the extreme renunciate path that he had followed, which was more about denying pleasure. And he remembered an experience he had had when he was young, when he went into deep concentration, and it was extremely pleasant. He had the pleasure of concentration, and he remembered that, and that was a key moment for him in coming to the middle way, which was to say that pleasure is not the enemy. You know, one, one shouldn't renounce pleasure entirely. Really a middle way approach where pleasure is part of life, really. And there, there's, a, there's a famous passage where the Buddha says, don't be frightened by concentration. You know, don't be scared by it. Don't be, don't be worried about the pleasure. I don't know if we need to hear that. <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's important when we know, that, know the history. The fourth quality is that of happiness or joy or contentment, sukha, which is a little more light and settled and relaxed than the quality of piti, which can be energizing and sometimes actually can be quite difficult to be with. You know, under PT, we have a lot of what in other traditions would be called some of the energy work and some of the ways that energy manifests in the body. But but the sukha is more a quality of contentment and happiness um, that is very crucial for the relaxing of the mind. It has a lot to do with relaxation 
I'll talk more about that when I talk about practicing with concentration because the relaxation that can occur in concentration is very, very crucial. In one of the texts on um, the model of transcendental dependent arising, which we taught two years ago at the March retreat, uh, which I think I mentioned it um, in my first talk, it's a model of the factors that lead to liberation as opposed to dependent arising, which I mentioned in my first talk, which is more about the cycle that um, keeps suffering going. You know, and I mentioned how the turning point is when we approach suffering in a different way. And in that model, happiness and gladness are very centrally connected with deepening concentration. It's quite interesting. The proximate reason for developing concentration is the well-being that we have. There's a sense of contentment, there's a sense of happiness, a sense of gladness. It really suggests you know, another reason for the power of the metta practice or some of the Brahmavihara practices that they can really help us then to deepen in concentration. And in that model, the concentration is then the stepping off point for deeper insight. So there sometimes is this relationship between the gladdening of the mind, concentration, and then insight. So there are qualities of calm, of peace. There can be that luminous quality that Mary Grace talked about, where the mind becomes very light, both metaphorically and literally, can be filled with different qualities of light as we, as we practice. The fifth factor is one-pointedness, the kind of the singleness, the single-centered focus on the object, kind of the locked-in quality. As concentration develops, there can be that locked-in quality where we can be concentrated and, and have that staying with the object so that any shift away from the object registers in our awareness. We can have levels of concentration where we can be with the object so fully, and I know many of us um, experience this, where we can sometimes experience a thought just as a blip that comes in a moment. The mind can be still and there can be a blip and I can be sitting there pretty still and experience this blip and know that that was a um, potential 10-minute discussion of my financial affairs. <laughs> and I can, I can know that right in the blip. It's kind, of, it's kind of uncanny. You can just set the seed, you know. So thoughts sometimes become seeds when the mind is quite quiet. It's quite, quite magical when, when, it's, when it's like that. When I did a, a period of um, concentration practice, I came up with metaphors for these five factors. I said, and they were like this. They, they, they were using the metaphor of fire. Vitaka keeps striking and igniting and starting, getting the fire going. Getting the fire going takes more energy. Vichara, the second, the, the sustaining, keeps the fire going. So we start the fire, keeps the fire going, is a little more subdued, but very constant and continuous. Piti, or the kind of uh, joy or rapture, spreads the fire to the rest of my body. (laughs) Sukha adds scented pine and sparklers to the fire, (laughs) increasing the fire in a gentle way, making it brighter and bigger. And then ekagata brings back the fire to the center of my heart and unifies the fire, warming everything. That was my own sense of what working with these factors was like when I was practicing. So very beautiful qualities. If you're not, everyone's ready to sign up for the next week of concentration practice, right? (laughs) We used to um, um, at IMS, there used to be, in the middle of the three-month retreat, there used to be one week of concentration practice where everyone turned their cushions to the wall, Zen style, and did concentration. I don't think that's done anymore. Is that done? Hmm? No. no. <laughs> Dropped. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we used to do that. It was just everyone did it for a week right in the middle of the three months. Then, then, then they went back to other things. So ready to sign up. But the second aspect of concentration uh, practice is that there is a process of purification. And this is really true of our entire practice. And it's really good to know that this is very, very natural, that we really come up against what stands in the way of practice. And it's called, it's called purification uh, in, the, in some of the classical texts. This is, from the, this is from one of the texts of the Buddha called the Relay Chariots. And it talks about the three kinds of purification. First, of our ethical life, of our way, it's called virtue in the, in the text. The second, that of our minds and hearts. And the third, of that of our, our wisdom or our understanding. It says, purification of virtue is for the sake of reaching purification of mind and heart. Purification of mind and heart is for the sake of reaching purification of view, which means the wisdom factor. And I've, I've, I'll use the word purification, recognizing that for some of us, it may not be so helpful. You know, that sometimes talking of purification implies that what's being purified is impure. And it may have that connotation for us. So you may want to use another metaphor. It's really a metaphor. But, but I think, think of it in a few ways. On the one hand, we find that which makes it hard for us to be present, hard for us to be concentrated, hard for us to be wise, which inevitably comes up in our experience. And we work with that. And there's a certain way that we work through it when we stay with it. And we can call that purification. And the other aspect of purification is that we tune in more in doing so to what we might call the pure factors, or we could call them the awakening factors, the factors of awakening. I think both are, both are true. So what gets purified in our experience here? Pretty much everything. You know, um, our bodies get purified in a way, our hearts get purified, our minds get purified. That we work through the... Ten armies of Mara, the hindrances, greed, hatred, and delusion. And we especially look at that as it manifests really in body and in heart and mind. You know, on the level of the body, many of us sit with knots that we find in our bodies that come up. This is part of the process. Sometimes with concentration practice, it actually becomes, uh, that happens more at times. And we've all probably sat with knots in the body. I know I've sat with the tension around my heart probably for hundreds of hours, you know, and just sat with that. Um, And we can sit with knots in the shoulders. We work out things in our bodies. We work out balance. I remember one of my first, some of my first retreats, there seemed to be real ways that I had to work out balance issues in my body. And I would sit and it would feel like my right shoulder was about 10 feet higher than my left shoulder. Has anyone had those experiences? You know, it was a very kind of unusual experience. I would sit there and I'd be sure my right shoulder was about five feet higher than, than my, my left. Or I remember another time I, uh, I would walk and every step I would take, the earth would move. And it happened for, stayed for three days. You know? And I, I think I was kind of into it. <laughs> I, I didn't really worry, you know, what if this stays for the rest of my life? Because you know, it, it kind of made walking, I had to be careful when I was walking. You know. And, you know, it was very nice. I went to Joseph Goldstein, who was my first teacher, my teacher of my first five years, and I just told him what I was experiencing. He said, oh yeah, that happened to me once. <laughs> that was it, you know. And I think there's, there's something really, really important about knowing that pretty much everything that each of us thinks is weird is completely normal. <laughs> okay, that's really important. You know, that, you know, so, so don't keep it secret from the teachers. Mention it and we'll say, oh yeah, that happened to me once. And, it, and I, I went after that meeting, I just went, I said, okay. And I just, no problem. <laughs> happened to Joseph, no problem. <laughs> so, so, but all sorts of things happen with the body. They're knots, they're tensions, they're parts of ourselves that feel frozen and so forth. This is totally independent 
of where there are injuries or something. This is just, we sometimes call the work with the body working through Dharma pain. You know? And there's a purification process that occurs. We also open to all sorts of emotional and psychological material. I think we know that. You know, we work through, we may have a lot more experience where fear comes up or anger or despair or sadness or there may be sexual energy or we may have a deep sense, also very beautiful qualities, the love comes up and so forth. You know, there can be very, you know, I think we probably all know or most of us know that the dream life is quite unusual on retreats. Probably most of you can, we don't talk so much about dreams, but for me personally, I find it really interesting. And it's very, the dream life is often out there. You know, people are ax murderers. You know, it happens, you know, and extreme things happen in dreams sometimes here that surprise us. When sometimes people sometimes come, has my ax murderer dream disclosed my true nature? So I would say, oh, I once had an axe murderer dream. Okay. (laughs) So there are dreams like that, you know, and and one of the powerful aspects of retreats is that we can have really sustained looks at, it could be a particular knot, emotional knot, that we just stay with. It could be an unexplored grief or something in our being that just has never been looked at a wound, a um, difficult area, you know, all sorts of things get, get opened up. It's quite powerful. You know, on the level of self, we look at all the self-images that we have, often in retreats that can, that can really come up in all sorts of ways. We can look at how we want to control things. You know? We can look at how we relate to time. I know for me, some very powerful experiences came when I saw more clearly that I was really trying to control the future. And when the mind gets quiet enough, I could actually sit there and feel this, these tendrils reaching uh, towards the future, completely futile, of course. But I could feel that. Maybe, maybe some of you have experienced that, this sense of not letting the future, the each moment, just be there on its own quite remarkable. This is what I'm calling part of the purification process. We look at qualities of the mind, the heart, how we relate to time, the self, all that comes up. And in a way, a lot of that has to be worked with. You know, I think simultaneously we also develop concentration and the other awakening qualities. But in a way, a lot of that has to be worked through before there can really be a deep settling. At the same time, that to work through it demands a certain concentration level and a certain steadiness. So actually, in working through it, we also develop some of the qualities uh, that are related to awakening. So some suggestions for working with concentration to develop it. Some practice suggestions that really uh, primarily come out of my own experience. And here I really want to talk about how to use skillful effort in in developing concentration. First of all, we need to really, we need to really ultimately balance two kinds of effort. One is a kind that we might call proactive effort. It's It's the effort of doing, of coming back, of really putting out energy and so forth. And the other is the, is the more receptive effort. It's really an effort of letting go. So I wanna talk about those two aspects of effort because they're quite important for concentration to develop. So we do need the proactive effort. We need to keep coming back. We need to continually come back. You know, it's often the, the metaphor for the right level of concentration that's given is often the musical instrument neither too tight nor too loose. Too loose, we just are at the mercy of our distractions. Too tight, and we, it doesn't work. You know, the the concentration gets distorted or we get a headache. People get headaches with unskillful concentration. 
So if you have a headache, could be a sign, could be other things too, but um, just to just to let to see see about that that imbalance. So it's really to stay with it, to keep coming back, to have that kind of persistence. One aspect of that proactive effort that can help a lot for deepening concentration is to do longer sittings. You can sit for some time, stay in here, and keep sitting through the walking period and maybe stay for the next sitting. One of the interesting things about concentration practice, for example, with the breath, if you're just staying with the breath, is it actually is not so helpful if there are a lot of strong, unpleasant feelings in the body. And so if you're doing a longer concentration period with the breath, you can actually sit for, could sit for 45 minutes, then stay with the breath and maybe stand up for two or three minutes, then sit back down or move to a chair, but keep the continuity with the breath going. And so when I've done longer sits, when I've sat for two or three hours at a time, if the sensations in the body were getting too strong, I would stand up and be with the breath, let it relax, but keep the continuity with the breath going. So it's actually, um, can be quite sweet. It doesn't have to be this big ordeal. It's more keeping the continuity of attention going so we can stay, stay with it. If we're doing it all day long, as I mentioned, you stay with the, the breath or the metta continually every moment. Just keep coming back in that way. At times, there are some strong, you know, there are some ways that we can really work in a strong way with repetitive thoughts. And if we're working with concentration, all of us have at times repetitive thoughts that have, been, have come a lot of times. And we've, we've given certain tools for working with repetitive thoughts, but I want to mention a few others that we can work with. Um, one tool that I find that I use a lot personally is very helpful. Uh, I sometimes call the dropping down practice. And it's a practice when we notice repetitive thoughts, we actually move to the upper body, the chest and the belly, and just let the attention stay there in a light way for a few minutes. Sometimes we can get a sense there in doing that of what's the energy driving the thought. And sometimes when we get, when we touch that energy, which could be an emotion, it could be anxiety, it could be anger, it could be something like that. When we touch that energy, often the thoughts don't continue in the same way. And so working with the body to go, as it were, beneath the level of repetitive thoughts can be a very skillful way to work with them, to work with thoughts, uh, both here and actually in daily life, very, very accessible practice. At times, the thoughts just keep coming back. Have you noticed, are there some thoughts that just keep coming back, even though you've told them, no. (laughs) Even though you've said, yes, this is a very important aspect for me to work out in my life, but let's do it after the retreat, okay? And you you say that, and 10 minutes later, but there's such calm now, you can really figure it out well right now. You know, and they're, they're, or they're just are repetitive, you know, all sorts of repetitive thoughts. It could be whatever about, you know, your Vipassana romance or your Vipassana vendetta. We haven't mentioned that, that, that so much, you know, which I, I won't go into. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, and, you know, it might be that. And sometimes it's actually very helpful in concentration practice to be firm, you know, just to say, no, and sometimes to rouse energy. When I've done periods of concentration practice, sometimes I bring up the image of a tiger. I go, mm-hmm. and when the thought comes, the repetitive thought comes, I just go, <coughs> or sometimes I use, some of you know in Tibetan practices, sometimes for the same purpose, people sometimes say, hey, you know, real in a strong way. And, um, so I do that sometimes in, silently, of course. <laughs> 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 
And you can do that internally. You know, it's kind of similar to some of you know, I think those of you who are here for the uh, two-month retreat know James Barras often likes to talk about the, the text on the removal of distracting thoughts. And there's, at the end of that, it says, if everything else fails, you know, how does it go? Um, let's see. Then, when, then with one's teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one should beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. <laughs> you know, so uh, you may prefer the, the tiger image to, the, to that. But, but the, the serious point is sometimes that kind of energy is necessary. That's a kind of proactive energy that helps at times in developing further concentration. I found it very, very useful. So then the other side, really, really crucial, is the um, quality of letting go in concentration, developing concentration. And probably for, for us, with probably most of the conditioning that most of us have received, this is actually more challenging. That for so many people raised in Western culture, we are doers. We are strivers. We know how to act. We know how to prepare to-do lists. You know, we can get things done. You know. Get things done in America, right? <laughs> we get things done. We don't think about things much, but we get things done. <laughs> okay. Was that a judgment? I okay. I don't know. Okay. Um, probably some truth there, whatever it was. <laughs> okay. Um, so we, we, we can really... Um, work with ways of developing concentration that are more on the other side, because ultimately the deepest concentration is based on relaxation. And a kind of letting be, letting go. And it's something that I know I've had a hard time learning. You know, I could tell all, I could tell 50 different stories of unskillful concentration, you know, uh, mostly around trying to do it too much, like, Again, many of us know this very well, trying to help the breath along, right? As if the breath didn't know what to do, <laughs> you know? And so we can, we can find these ways of, of letting go. We can, uh, one beautiful way that I found very useful when we're inviting deeper concentration is to really be in touch with the sense of mystery, really the mystery of deepening concentration and to invoke that sense of mystery like at the beginning of a sitting, which can really invite a certain humility in just letting things be as they are as we practice. To have the sense of receptive effort where we're letting off some of the, the really intensive effort Some of it can be when concentration is developing really to enjoy the moment because some of concentration practice is about getting somewhere. You know, some of the proactive effort is about getting somewhere. I want to get more concentrated. And so simply enjoying the moment can be a beautiful practice that helps deepen in this way. There can also be a sense of really appreciating the beauty, for example, of the breath or the the beauty of the feeling of metta and just resting in that in a way. There's a way in which, whether it's actually concentration practice or a mindfulness practice, that the deepening really has a lot to do with the quality of resting that Mary Grace talked about. That quality of resting at the same time that there's concentration, a little bit paradoxical, you know, in a way, we might say, the effort becomes effortless. And I think we know this from many times when we've had great effort in doing something. I think people who are athletes or <clears throat> musicians, there can be tremendous effort that's, no, that's without even feeling like it's effort, a kind of effortless effort. This is from the Buddha in conversation with a deva, or uh, usually translated as angel. Tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood, that is the entanglements of the world, 
I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. But how did you cross over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place? When I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. And as the concentration deepens, we sometimes turn it to look at phenomena, to look at our experience. As I mentioned, the original intention of developing concentration is to see more clearly. And one of the tremendous benefits of concentration is that we see through our minds, really. We see through our constructions. We see through our habits. We see through the way even that the world is constructed. We see through the way that objects are formed. We see through past, present, and future. And we see things in a different way, which is conducive to insight. And in that way, ultimately, concentration and and insight go together. They're not really separate practices. And that's really how they were treated by the Buddha. They were treated as connected practices. This is from uh, Achan Chah, the Thai teacher, whom I had the privilege of studying with, actually. I think the only time he came to the U.S. He said, meditation is like a single stick of wood. Vipassana is one end of the stick, and shamatha, her concentration, the other. If we pick it up, does only one end come up, or do both? Insight has to develop out of peace and tranquility. The entire process happens naturally on its own accord. And so there was that emphasis on both kinds of practices and ultimately that's our, that really is what we work with. We develop in concentration and has these fruits of steadiness and peace and bliss and calm and the ability to cut through thoughts and so forth but ultimately we do so, so we can see our own experience clearly. We can see the world clearly, so that we can come, come to insight that is, that is freeing. And the Buddha was insistent that concentration is necessary for that insight in its deepest form. And so this practice is a crucial one for us. If you found this um, energizing or inspiring to deepen in your concentration, you can do it in any of the number of ways that I mentioned. Another way that I didn't mention is simply in every sitting, really focus maybe for five minutes and really try to really stay in a very focused, concentrated way with whatever you're attending to and do that with every sitting. That can help move things forward as well. So if you're inspired or energized, you may want to work more fully with concentration practice, you know, for more sittings a day, for a day, for several days, with the breath, with metta, and so forth. I think I'll close with uh, two poems that, also that, um, that I wrote. Um, one of them I already read. <laughs> but the, I'll, I'll repeat that second one, but I'll add another one that, that also has to do with concentration. My mother Bernice is a musician. She says that music is her concentration practice. She says in giving a concert, if there's a sense of self, or if how one's doing, it's not good, she says. You have to let yourself be taken over by the music. May we all be taken over by the music. This ancient vocation of simplicity, purity of heart is to will one thing, said Kierkegaard. The breath opens the doors to outer life and to inner light, 
where we may for a time reside in silence, stillness, and brilliant space and be brought refined, renewed, revived, revisioned back to the next sounds, steps, and sights of this journey home. So thank you very kindly for your samadhi of attention. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.